Lord Jesus, you are the author of all love. And your love excels all other kinds of love. And Lord, we want to be the kind of loving people you've called us to be. So please open your word to us this morning and teach us from it. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. When Dana was reading that scripture about meat sacrificed to idols, you all looked a little confused. You had this sort of look like, I wonder what he's going to do with this. Well, let's see what happens. A few years ago, uh, during a church retreat that I led, some of the participants got in a fight over which rooms they would sleep in. And uh, yeah, at a church retreat, it was great. Some of them had come early because they wanted to get the extra good rooms, but some of the latecomers were trying to muscle in on those good rooms. So they all fought about it. Now, the people who were there first were certainly right. I mean, they were there first and had laid prior claim to the rooms, but they weren't really being very loving about it. And they certainly weren't doing anything to elevate the spiritual atmosphere of the retreat by bickering. They were right, but they weren't loving. I think a lot of times in life we face a choice between being right or claiming our rights and being loving. And that's what's at issue in that very strange text that we read out of 1 Corinthians 8. You see, the problem the Corinthians were facing was this question of whether or not to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Part of pagan ritual was to sacrifice animals to Zeus or something like that and then sell the meat on the market. And Christians were asking, is it okay to eat that meat? Now, some Christians said, of course it is, because we know that Zeus doesn't exist and idols aren't real, so it's just like any other meat. Besides, it's the cheapest meat on the market, so it's just good economic sense. Other Christians disagreed. They said, no, 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 to eat that food is to participate in idolatry in a backhanded way. So it's immoral. And so they put the question to Paul. Hey, Paul, who's right here? Tell us what the rule is on meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul's answer is astonishing. He says, you're both wrong. You've both missed the point. The issue is not whether or not you eat meat. Eat, don't eat, it's just food. And the issue is not who's right and who's wrong. The issue is a third thing that you guys haven't even thought of. The issue is, what are your actions doing to those around you? Do your actions build them up or tear them down? Do your actions create community or hinder it? Do your actions help other people become everything that God intended them to be or not? Paul says, look, you're perfectly free to eat meat. That's, there's no rule against that. But here's the problem. If you do that, and someone who's just come out of idolatry sees you, that may offend them. Or that may make them think that it's okay to worship idols. And if you've done that to them, then you've hurt them. You would have been right. You would have been within your rights to eat that food. But you wouldn't have been loving. You see, the problem with the Corinthians was not their meat-eating habit. Their real problem was that they were selfish people. What they wanted was a checklist of do's and don'ts, an alphabet of cans and cannots, 
so that they would know exactly what they could and could not do, so that they would know exactly what they could do and get away with it and still be legal. Because that's the great thing about rules. Once you got them, you can find all the loopholes, right? More than that, though, they, what they were really seeking was power over each other. What they wanted was Paul to take one side or the other so that then, armed with their apostolic list of do's and don'ts, they could come to the other side and say, look, you guys are wrong. We're right. You're the sinners. Paul says so right here in 1 Corinthians 8. Read it. Both sides wanted to reduce the good news of Christianity, which is about a relationship with the eternal God through Christ, reduce that good news down to a list of rules and regulations. And Paul absolutely refuses to debase Christianity that way. He absolutely refuses. He refuses the very terms of the debate. He said the the whole terms of the debate are wrong because Christianity isn't about rules. It's about grace. And so Paul replaces their alphabet of do's and don'ts with one rule, the rule of love. And for Paul, love is not some mushy little feeling in the heart, the way our culture defines it. For Paul, love is a commitment to seek the best for another person, to point them to Jesus and help them become everything that God intends them to be. That's love. We're talking this fall about what the church is supposed to be. And I think the view a lot of people have, particularly non-Christians, is that the church is sort of the guardian of right and wrong. And that the church's job is to preserve perfect doctrine and flawless theology and maintain that alphabet of cans and cannots and then impose it on everyone else. But what Paul says to the church here is that's not your job. Your job is to be a loving community which points people to Jesus and helps them become everything that God intends them to be. Love, not legalism. That's the principle. Now, how do we apply this to our everyday lives? Because eating meat sacrificed to idols isn't exactly our crisis, right? I don't have a moral dilemma every time I go into QFC. Should I eat the ground beef or has it been sacrificed to Zeus, right? That's not our issue. But on a lot of issues we face, we have a choice between being right or being within our rights and being loving. As a college pastor, one of the issues I faced a lot was alcohol. And students would ask me, if I'm over 21 and I don't get drunk, couldn't I have a glass of wine with dinner? Isn't that okay? And they'd have all kinds of arguments for why it was okay. And my answer would always be, well, maybe, maybe. There's nothing in the Bible that I can find that would prohibit a glass of wine with dinner. But according to this passage that that we just read, that's the wrong question. Can I or can't I? That's the wrong question. The question is, what's loving? What is this going to do to people around me? And so for me, in a culture where alcohol is so abused and so many people have a hard time with it, that means for me, if I'm going to drink, I better be sure it's not going to offend anyone or trip anybody up, or tempt them in any way, or cause them any harm. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to make a rule one way or the other. I, I'm sure there's many diverse opinions in this room. And I'm not laying down an absolute rule. What I'm trying to say is, the question we ask in a situation like that is not, is this okay or not? It's, is it loving? 
will it build people up. And in some situations, that will lead us to lay aside our rights in order to help someone else grow in their faith. Love requires a sacrifice. Now, before I go any further, let me just throw out a couple of caveats that you might be thinking right now. You might be saying, well, wait a minute, Scott. I'm not sure that... There's a couple of caveats. Does this mean that, you know, this idea that, that rule, it's love, not rules, does this mean that there are no rules? That we can do anything we want as long as we can figure out how it's loving? Sort of... Because you could do that with just about anything, right? Situational ethics? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The Bible is crystal clear on a whole host of issues. Gossip, greed, envy, sexual sins. The Bible is absolutely clear there. What is right and what the loving thing to do is. And those things hurt people. They miss God's intended best for people. And if we love someone that's doing something that harms them or someone else, we don't just sit by and go, way to go, go for it, keep it up. That's not love. In those situations, love is to go to that person and gently confront them and say, for your own sake, please change this behavior. This is not God's intended best for you. But even there, the rule is the same. What's loving? What builds people up? Also, this doesn't mean that we're doormats who have no rights at all. If we are in an abusive situation, we need to get out of that. Because that's being loving to us. And this also doesn't mean that that there aren't times when we have to stand up for biblical truth. We do. The civil rights was a great example of that. When the church had to stand up for biblical truth because that was the loving thing to do. But when we do that, if we do that, we do it in love, not in self-righteous indignation. The goal is to help others become everything Christ intended them to be. The rule is love. And and this rule applies to all kinds of things. How, How we defend our rights, how we argue our opinions. I, I, I used to know a man who loved theology, and, and he, was, he knew a lot of stuff. The, the problem was, every time, you, you couldn't get two sentences out of your mouth before he'd jump all over you with some argument, or with some reason he found that your argument was wrong. I mean, you'd be saying something, you'd go, no, no, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're, you're forgetting what Zwingli said about limited atonement and soteriology. Oh, you're right, how could I have forgotten that? Slipped my mind. He was right, but he wasn't loving. And he wasn't building people up in Christ. That's why Paul says here, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowing things, being right, theologically, politically, whatever, that's not the issue. The issue is being loving and building others up. And that's what good theology is. You see, it's not that theology doesn't matter. It's just that good theology always leads to loving behavior. When I was in seminary, I I volunteered to teach a class at a church about Christianity and art and literature. And one day after this class, a man came up to me just furious with me. And he started yelling at me. And he said, you are a very rude, irreverent young man. I said, whoa, what did I do? What's wrong? And he said, you keep using the word stuff. Apparently, I would say things like Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel and other stuff. (laughs) It's five letters, not four. You know, what's wrong with this word? He found it offensive to him. It demeaned the art and even demeaned God. Why? This bugged me. I, I brooded over this for a week. 
I talked to friends about it. They, they got mad for me, you know, assured me that there's nothing wrong with the word stuff. They pointed out that Plato used it. It's even in the Nicene Creed in the Greek. I thought that was great. I could use that, right? Guess you don't like the Nicene Creed either, do you? All week, I brooded over it, toyed with the idea of in the next class flaunting the word stuff. You know, maybe working Thanksgiving into the conversation so I could talk about turkey and stuffing. (laughs) Bring in a stuffed animal. I could have done all that stuff. But I didn't. I, I didn't because I decided in the end that it was more loving to let it go. This man had had a series of health crises and... Even though I thought I was right and that Western civilization probably wouldn't stand unless I corrected his error, I decided that in the end it was more loving to let it go. Not because I'm virtuous, but because God was working on my heart. Now, I was within my rights to use the word stuff if I wanted to. Plato did. But if that was going to get in the way of this man hearing about Jesus, then I decided to lay my rights down in respect for him. Now, I need to say, I can also imagine a situation in which the loving thing to do would have been to gently confront him and help him become a less critical person, more focused on more important things. But even if I did that, my motive better have been love, not proven that I was right. The question is never, am I right or am I within my rights? The question is, what is loving? What will help others become all that Jesus intended them to be? And there's just one problem with that rule of love. It's just one tiny problem. It's hard to do, isn't it? It's hard to do. It's, that's the great thing about rules. It's easier. You just look up the rules. Stuff, okay, there we go. I'm fine. The rule of love is much trickier to figure out. That's why we've got to stick close to Jesus. He's the only one that's going to help us figure this out. Stick close to Jesus through prayer, through worship, through reading the Bible so that our minds are transformed and we begin to think like Him. So that in any situation, we'll be able to discern what the loving thing to do is. The point here is we can't fall into legalism where we've got a list of laws that we just clobber people with. But we can't fall into libertinism either where anything goes. What we have to fall into is love. And that's what the church is called to be. A community whose number one rule is love for each other and for the world. There's a priest named Brennan Manning who tells a story of a 26-year-old man who came to him for counseling. This, This man's life was just a mess. He was addicted to drugs and alcohol. He'd had six marriages already by 26 And as Brendan Manning was was listening to him, he was trying to figure out what he should say to this young man as a priest. Should he tell him about canonical law? Should he advise him how to legally annul his marriages? Should he quote to him the doctrines and dogmas of the church? But when he opened his mouth, the only thing that came out was, I have a word for you from your brother Jesus. Welcome home. And the young man said, who is this Jesus that he would welcome someone like me? I think I need to know him. And they spent the rest of the afternoon talking about Jesus. Well, later that night, Brennan Manning started to feel guilty. He began to wonder if, as a priest, he had done the right thing. 
He began to wonder if maybe he shouldn't have talked about doctrines and dogmas. Maybe he should have gotten this guy to formally go to confession and repent. And as he mulled all of this over, he felt more and more guilty. And finally, he just blurted out a prayer. He said, Lord Jesus, forgive me for being too merciful to a sinner. For if it is a fault, it is a fault I learned from you. Was he right? Technically, legally, theologically, I don't know. What he did, though, was point this man to Jesus and help him become everything that God intended him to be. And that's what love is. A commitment to seek the best for another person, point them to Jesus, and help them grow. And if that is a fault, it is a fault that we can best learn from our Lord. Who, when we had sinned and gone our own way, would have been right would have been well within his rights to lecture us and condemn us for our rebellion, but who instead laid aside every right he had as the Son of God and died for us so that we could know him and we could become like him. That was not what was rightfully due him, but it's what he chose. And we, his church, are called to choose the same rule of love because what good, what real good does it do us to be right or to be within our rights but not be loving? No good at all. That's why a few chapters later, the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, who are always fussing about their rights and always impressed with how right they were, Paul says, I will show you a more excellent way than this. For if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, if I have all kinds of knowledge, if I am right... If I have a list of do's and don'ts, a checklist of can and cannots, and I let everyone else know about it, and if I am well within my rights to do something and I do it, but I have not love, I am useless. Love is patient. It's kind. It doesn't boast. It it doesn't rejoice in evil. It, It never insists on its own way. Love hopes all things endures all things, believes all things. Prophecies, they'll cease. All your theological knowledge, it'll be gone. And it's nothing compared to God's anyway. But faith, hope, love, these three remain. And the greatest of these isn't being right or being within our rights. The greatest of these is love. Lord Jesus, help us get there. Help us get there as individuals and as a community. Help us to become your face of love to the world around us so that people will know that you are Lord. Please do this through us and we'll be grateful people. In your name we pray. Amen.